Father, we bow in your presence because you are king. And your kingdom has arrived in one sense, and we wait for its completion and its, its total fulfillment yet in the future. But you told us to come into your presence. The Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth should keep silence before him. So our hearts bow to the one exalted above all the universe. Speak to our hearts and draw us to yourself in mercy and grace and love. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. There is a metaphorical idiom used in English when an important topic, which is obvious to everyone, is being ignored. We talk about that as the white elephant in the room. So I imagine this couple is married, and uh, they're having a nice evening together, both working on their devices. But there is something in between their relationship. It's... Uh, the topic that they don't want to discuss, their marriage is falling apart. You can see it in the guy a little bit as he kind of glances over just slightly to see if she's going to broach the subject, but they continue on never addressing this huge problem. It's interesting, is it not, that for one reason or another, uh, we are often afraid, maybe embarrassed, to discuss an enormous issue that uh, we don't want to confront. But you can't ignore the elephant in the room very long. It has to be addressed, and ultimately will be. Weighty subjects cannot be overlooked. And it's true in the realm of religion, or in the Bible. I imagine the first uh, hearers of this letter to the Hebrews, because it was probably preached as well as inscribed, when the hearers or readers first got the message, I imagine it was somewhat startling to them. Remember, they're Jewish believers. They've come out of Judaism, put their faith and trust in Christ. But because of persecution, which they have endured up to this point, they're thinking about returning back to Judaism because it appears that more persecution is on the way. And this fits very well, uh, by the way, to the historic setting in the first century in Rome with the persecution of the emperors uh, like Nero and uh, the many believers that were blamed for Rome burning and the persecution that ramped up multiple times. I can imagine these Jewish believers reading this and maybe saying under their breath, not willing to address it at first, you say this Jesus is exalted above all angels? Right. And that he is God the Son? That's exactly right. Well then, how come he suffered and died? The Old Testament prophets say that the Messiah is going to be a conqueror not a victim. This doesn't fit with the scriptures. And so I think perhaps the author here decides to address the elephant in the room. 
he decides to hit it head on. How can Jesus be above the angels and yet, according to chapter 2, below the angels? I love the way God brings in his truth in such a way that it causes, up to, causes us to sit up and take notice. The author is going to explain verse 8 of what we do not see now. This is chapter 2 of Hebrews. What we do not see, and then he's going to explain in verse 9 what we do see, and he's going to use the wonderful text of Psalm 8 to bring it all into perspective. And so, going to uh, he, the book of Hebrews, actually, in chapter 2, verse 5, that's a continuation of the argument he left off at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 13, and we have it on the screen for you. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And that's the quotation. That's a quotation taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. It appears to be the author's favorite exaltation quotation because he's going to use it repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews. Then he picks up the argument in chapter 2, verse 5 with the same thought. It is not to the angels that he has subject, subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. So it's obvious that the angels are not going to be rulers, is his point, and they're not going to be in control of the world to come. It is interesting that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered around the late 1940s and into the 1950s, uh, these scrolls were found in caves among the pious community in Qumran. The Old Testament scriptures that were studied and the sect that lived there also had some commentaries on the Old Testament. And they described the Messiah in actually two individuals. One who would be a king and one who would be a priest. And the priestly Messiah was actually greater than the kingly Messiah. But in their writings, they said that both of these Messiah figures would be subordinate to the angels, in particular to the archangel Michael. And so that thought was predominant in that community and predominant most likely in many other Jewish areas. And so the idea was that these angels are so great, they indeed help to mediate the word of God to the human race and they are now helping to administrate the world of God, the world in which we live. But the Bible made it abundantly clear at the end of chapter 1 in Hebrews that they are ministering spirits and not ruling spirits. So to none of the angels will he subject the world to come. None of the angels have been told that the world and the enemies are going to be put under them as they are sitting at the, at the Lord's right hand. You see, the Jews saw basically two worlds. They saw this world and then the world to come. Uh, the world to come is mentioned in verse 5. The interesting thing about this world to come is that it has already begun. When Jesus came, he introduced his kingdom, and the world to come. In fact, you'll see this later on in Hebrews, like in chapter 6. 
Uh, we have tasted of the world to come or the coming age. And when you get to chapter 10, verse 18, the author says, we have not come to that mountain that can be touched, physical, Mount Sinai, that was burning with fire in darkness and gloom and storm. Mount Sinai was a terrifying effect in, in, in a time when God gave the law to the people. It was so terrifying that they begged that God would speak no further word. And in chapter 10, verse 21, it says Moses was so terrified, he said, I am trembling with fear. But a couple of verses later in verse 22, Hebrews 10, 22, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly and to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So it's not to a law with gloom and doom that is terrifying. You have come to a joyful, wonderful experience where the angels are rejoicing and all of God's people will dwell forever. You have already come to this. You've already tasted of that good life to come. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in God's kingdom, and God's kingdom has come to you. But not in its final fulfillment. We are tasting of heavenly fruit. We are enjoying the blessings of the age to come right now just not yet in their final form. And I can see people reading this and saying, I don't get it. How can it be the already, but the not yet? And so he says, well, let me explain it to you with a psalm. So in verse 6, he begins his quotation of the psalm that Pastor Doug wrote, read a moment ago, Psalm 8. It's, it's kind of interesting how he starts out verse 6, isn't it? Uh, but there is a place where someone has said or testified, he's saying, doesn't this guy know where it is? Doesn't he know where the quotation is? But this is just a literary device to bring up a quotation. You don't want to say the same thing all of the time, and so-and-so said, and so-and-so said, so you come up with another way to say it. Uh, there was a time when someone said, he knows exactly the time, he knows exactly the person, and it is clearly in Psalm 8. He said, and he quotes from the psalm, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now it's very important that you understand this. The original context in Psalm 8 is talking about a human being. Man is mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, meaning just a mere man, that you would care for them? The emphasis is on human beings. Don't miss that. It's a glorious thing, actually. So he's comparing human beings to the creation of God, and when you compare us to the creation, we look woefully insignificant. But he's still mindful of us. And he cares for us. Look at verse 7. Still from Psalm 8. You have made them, or mankind, 
a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned them, the him is the collective, plural, with glory and honor. Now, he is not depreciating man. He is exalting man. The lower is actually a high honor uh, of position. Think of it. Mankind has made, been made just a little lower than the angels. If I said to you, your golf game is just a little lower than Tiger Woods, that would not be derogatory. Well, maybe now when he can't play, but when he could play at his best, I'm not putting you down. I'm giving you a high position of honor, right? And that's what God is doing for us in Psalm 8. Don't miss it. He's given you a great place. It's a position of honor. It's just below the angels. And we are the crown of God's creation. If you've ever heard that phrase, it comes, I think, from this portion of Scripture. We have been crowned with glory and honor. God has made us in his image and elevated mankind over the rest of the universe. Dignity has been conferred upon us. I like what Griffith Thomas said many years ago. Notwithstanding man's littleness, God intended his position to be one of remarkable greatness. And this is man before the fall. Created in the image of God. Look at verse 8. And he's put everything under his feet. Now that takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, doesn't it? God said, I let us make man in our image. God has made us in his image, elevated us to a high position, crowned us with glory and honor, and we have dominion over everything. His utmost favor Unique dignity conferred upon us and unrivaled dominion is ours. And then man fell. Verse 8. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because the author who was quoting Psalm 8 now begins to interpret Psalm 8, which in the Jewish mind uh, is very common. It's the midrash of the rabbis it's where you quote something from the Old Testament and then you write your interpretation of it and it becomes a commentary on the sacred scripture. So the author of Hebrews is now making a comment on what he just read. Verse 8, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. So man's over everything. Glorious position. And in verse 8, Yet, at present, we do not see everything under him. Again, we're still talking about man. Why do we not see man in dominion in this world? It's because of the fall and our rebellion against God. So think of it this way. What do we not see? See the phrase from verse 8? We do not see the rule of man over creation. It's not there. Man's a failure. Everything about man in trying to rule this world ends up in chaos. 
We possess the intellectual and moral and spiritual capabilities to rule, made in the image of God, but our sin has defiled all of that. We are free, yet everywhere bound. We are dignified, made in the image of God, but everywhere defiled, frustrated by our conditions, defeated by temptation, filled with incredible weakness, human beings do not rule well. And a man may tame a wild beast for a while. You've seen it at the circus. And then one day the wild beast takes care of the trainer. G.K. Chesterton said, whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. Sin has ruined us. But then the writer of Hebrews takes this wonderful psalm about man and applies it to Jesus. You say, how do you know that? Because of verse 9. And now you can go back and read somewhere in talking about man, he's, he's talking about Christ too. This is a messianic psalm. We have the divine commentary in the book of Hebrews that points to that fact. So, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man. And now we think of Jesus using that title. That was his favorite title, the one he preferred in his earthly ministry. The first Adam, God's created son, ruined the world. The second Adam, God's incarnate son, is going to restore the world. But Jesus has to be a man to do it. So he fits in with everything that we've seen up to this point in Psalm 8. He's the perfect man, the ideal man, the true embodiment of humanity. He's what mankind would look like, at least in some degree, without sin. When Jesus gave up, willingly set aside his heavenly privileges, as Philippians 2 tells us, he became a man. And we need to understand that. He didn't avoid the difficulties of humanity. The hazards, the dangers, the tiredness. He was a man yet without sin. So in chapter 1, the Old Testament um, the writer of Hebrews says the Old Testament says that Jesus is above the angels. And in chapter 2, he says that he is below the angels and the tension can be felt. This is the elephant in the room. But you have to remember that this whole idea of Holy Scripture having a prophecy and a fulfillment but finally, in the third place, a complete final fulfillment, or it's, there's the consummation in the end. It's like an installment before the final payment. That's what's happening in Scripture, and indeed, it is happening here. Jesus has been exalted, and everything has been put under his feet. We read that he was exalted in chapter 1, uh, at the end of the chapter, to the right hand of the Father, which will be quoted again later in the book of Hebrews. He is at that high place far above man. 
and everything is under his feet. Sit at my feet till I make your enemies your footstool. He's referring to Jesus. It's now applied to Christ. But there's something we don't see in the rule of Jesus. We don't see it. We don't see the rule of Jesus right now. There's partial fulfillment because he's at the right hand. But even in chapter 1, he says, I've, I've brought you to the right hand until I make your enemies. It's not happened yet. There's a delay. And in Hebrews, how does he put it? Yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to him. Is Jesus sovereign over the world? Yes. Is he at the right hand? Yes. Does he have all power? Yes. Is everything in this world subject to him? In one sense, no. He's allowed the God of this world to have his way. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what's the rest of it? On earth. Just like it's being done in heaven. That hasn't happened yet. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We don't see it. We don't see man ruling like he should, and we don't even see Christ ruling like he will. Which causes some people to say, you know what? Maybe Jesus isn't God. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't worship him and give my life to him. Maybe there is a problem with this whole theology. I've been suffering for the name of Christ and it's gotten me nowhere. And some of you have been thinking that. Some of us think that where we have days and it just seems to crash in upon us, right? It's the already but the not yet. It's not easy to live in the delays of God. He promised something, but it hasn't happened yet. Remember when Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was sick? Remember that? And what did Jesus do? I'll be right there. And I'll raise him from the dead. That's what they wanted to hear. But Jesus took his time. He didn't get there for four days. And they were quite upset, actually. Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. You say, how do, they, how do you know they said it that way? I don't. But <laughs> I kind of think they were a little ticked. If you'd been here, we wouldn't be in this mess. You ever said that to the Lord? The Lord says, I'm coming. I'll be there. When I get there, <laughs> I'll answer your prayer at the right time. This is all for the glory of God. Just live in the delay. And you and I say, I don't want to. I want instant help. After all, isn't that what you promised? No. <laughs> he promised difficulty and tribulation on the way to the kingdom. That's part of the promise. So we have to learn to live in the delays by seeing Jesus as he really is. 
This is what we do not see. But what do we see? Well, we see that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. This is verse 9. And he's continuing his commentary on Psalm 8, but applying it to Christ. But we do see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, or made lower than the angels for a little while. That is a very interesting translation. You've got two aspects here. A little lower could be degrees, rank, one above the other. Or it could be for a little while, temporary. And the Hebrew encompasses both of these. That is, the original language encompasses both of them. So I love to read verse 9 like this, like this. But we see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels, for a little while. You see, the incarnation was temporary, but the exaltation is permanent. And he's on the throne right now. Don't forget that. His humanity was temporary. He is now glorified and his exaltation will be forever. He's made a little lower. He's crowned with glory and honor sitting at the right hand. But he was made a little lower so that he could suffer death. Jesus became a man and we'll see this in the rest of chapter 2 The humanity of Christ is so essential, and I don't think we put enough focus on it. He had to become a man, and he had to suffer like we suffer, yet without sin. And he suffered all the way to the point of death. In fact, it was by the grace of God. God's unique administration of the death of Jesus, he was able to put all of our sin upon him by grace. And Jesus tasted death, not just for himself, but for everyone, by the grace of God. Some people say, I don't like the fact that when Adam sinned, I was in Adam and he was my representative and because he sinned, I'm a sinner. I don't like that. (laughs) Do you really think if you had been there, you would have done something different? Absolutely. People will say, no, you wouldn't. God knew you wouldn't. So in grace, he allowed one person to take us into sin so that one person could take us up to glory. That's perfect balance. That's what Romans 5 says. And he becomes, as chapter 2 later says, the pioneer, the captain, the author of our faith. He was made a little lower, or made lower for a little while, and suffered. So he knows what it means when we say, I'm suffering. I don't think when we come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm hurt, I'm broken. My heart has been ripped out of me. I've lost a loved one. I can't seem to get over this sin. I'm a mess. I don't think Jesus says, buck it up. I don't think he says, stop your whining. Did you have a dad like that? That may be why you think Jesus is like that. But he's not. He weeps with those who weep. He understands. 
Jesus tasted death for everyone. And then get this, Jesus has, after he died, buried, rose again, the ascension, seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus was made higher, and he's at the right hand. So Jesus was made lower to die, and then he was exalted to the highest position. position. Chapter 1 says, after having made purification for our sins, he was raised to that position. So the author of Hebrews is saying much of what he said before, but he's addressing this apparent conflict. Jesus took a step down. He died. He took a step up, exalted. And one day he will take a step over in the sense that everything, when he comes again, everything will be under his control. Oh, glorious day. Are you frustrated by the world, world's situation? Are you frustrated by what's happening in our land are you frustrated what's happening in your family and all of these things they're temporal things we've got to deal with them but you need to see Jesus as your savior and you need to see Jesus as the sovereign and you need to live your life with those two perspectives remember years ago I saw a cartoon. I don't know if I can remember it perfectly. I'm trying to bring it up at the spur of the moment. But it's uh, Charlie Brown. And I remember Charlie Brown and Linus were lying on their backs in a summer day and watching the clouds go by. And Charlie Brown said something like, you know, I've heard it said that when you look at the clouds, you can see different things. He said to Linus, what do you see? And Linus comes back with something like, well, I see the Impressionist artist Picasso in this one. And I, I see the famous World War II hero, Eddie Rickenbacker, over here with his plane. And he went on and there's silence. And Charlie Brown says, oh, I, I just saw a, a doggy and a horsey. <laughs> it's amazing we can look at the same thing and see something so different. What do you see when you look at Jesus. I see a big disappointment. That's what many of the Jews would say. What do you see? Well, I think I see my Savior, but it just doesn't seem like he knows what's happening or he doesn't care. What do you see? The scripture says he was made lower and made higher and he's on the throne. And even though this world rebels against him and the God of this world influences that rebellion, he's still in control and you can trust him. He has a purpose for our problems and in the end, we'll get glory from it all. Do you see Jesus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And when you do, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, I have to admit my eyes are often diverted from 
my Savior who died for me. I forget about the passion of the cross. I forget about the atonement that was made to secure my eternal redemption. I forget that in Christ I am loved and forgiven and accepted. That's what happens when I take my eyes off of the Savior. And Lord, when I take my eyes off of Jesus who is exalted at the right hand of the Father, that's when I get frustrated with life. I think it's out of control. I think it's haphazard. I think there is no order to it. And it, the bad things that are happening to me just happen to me without any divine intervention. But what I forget is God is on the throne. And although I cannot see his rule in this world like one day it will be seen, I can know that he rules over me and he guides my every step and he will protect me. Lord, let me turn to you and in faith trust you every step of the way. While we're praying, let me encourage you to pray for Pray just for a moment and turn your eyes upon Jesus, will you? Trust him if you don't know him. Take him as your Lord and Savior. But if you're already a believer, ask the Lord to refocus your attention on him, to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray.